0: This is the STEM Read Podcast.
1: Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. In each episode, we interview an expert and an author to explore the connections between stories and STEM. Hi, I'm Jillian King-Cargile. I am a writer, a book lover, and the director of Northern Illinois University's STEM Read.
2: And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I am an educator, an engineer, and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today on the STEM Read
1: Podcast, we're going to talk about what if, and I just have to say that this is a very special episode. We're going to talk about a personal issue that is very near and dear to Kristen's heart, unicorns. We're also going to talk to Lynn Thomas about speculative fiction and the role that science fiction and fantasy can play in the classroom and in the lives of students if they have the opportunity to ask what if. So Kristen, why are you dressed like a unicorn today? (laughs) I dress like a unicorn every day. <laughs> every day, I'm a unicorn. So, what's the deal with unicorns? You have
2: lots of unicorns in your office, and at the door to your office, and so I have a bit of an obsession with unicorns, just a little. Uh huh. Um, and it goes way back to elementary school. So, this isn't kind of a new jump on the unicorn bandwagon thing. <laughs> um <laughs> you're not one of
1: those posers with the no, unicorn I obsession
2: unicorns since before unicorns were cool um i was that kid in elementary school that would just like drive everybody crazy because i'd talk about unicorns all the time even my brother would be like oh my gosh you don't need it because it's a unicorn I'm like yes i do i had everything that was unicorn loved everything unicorny it was great i think my favorite book growing up was a book called sarah's unicorn And it was about a girl who had a unicorn best friend. Uh Uh-huh. And I thought, I want a unicorn best friend. And I'm like, what if I could have a unicorn best friend? We all need a unicorn best friend. We do. And she actually, you know, this was a magic unicorn that made her life happy. And I was convinced that unicorns were real. People thought I was crazy. So needless to say, when you're focused on unicorns that much, it's hard to stay focused on school. And so I really didn't pay attention in school a lot because my brain's going unicorns. Until the fourth grade, I think, is when it really hit its peak. And we had this project called an independent study project. And you were pulled out of class and you could do a project about anything you wanted to. So two guesses what I did my project on. Hmm. Suez Canal. Close. <laughs> Close. No, I did Rhinos. In a way, because rhinos are just chubby unicorns, mm. really. No, I picked unicorns and I was so excited about it. So Um, I finally got to really ask that question, what if unicorns were real? And I got to investigate it. Like I could dig into it. I did all the research on unicorn mythology and the evidence of what is a, you know, are there real unicorns out there? And it was fantastic. It was great. Now that I look back at it as an educator, I'm like, wow, my independent study teacher was brilliant. So as Merit had this down, she was letting us follow our passion, follow our curiosity. And while we were learning about those things, unicorns, we were actually learning how to learn. And it really engaged us. And I look back at that now to think about how letting your kids follow your obsessions and curiosity can really, it can be that gateway to learning. So yay, unicorns.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So yay, unicorns. So here in the studio to bridge the gap between unicorns and learning is Lynn Thomas. In addition to being a unicorn enthusiast, Lynn is a five-time Hugo Award winner for her SF Squeecast, her Chicks Dig Time Lords collection, and Uncanny magazine, which she co-edits and publishes with her husband, Michael Damian Thomas. And then to continue the discussion of What If, we'll be talking to Erin Starmer. Erin is the author of several weird, awesome YA and middle grade books such as Spontaneous, a novel about growing up and blowing up, and the Riverman trilogy, the haunting story of a boy who is trying to save the girl next door from something real
0: or imagined that is out to get her.
1: So Lynn, why don't you tell us who you are and what you do?
0: Oh boy, this could take a little while. I am, in my day job, the curator of rare books and special collections at Northern Illinois University, where I supervise and am the archivist for the literary papers of about 75 different science fiction and fantasy authors, as well as the official archives of the science fiction and fantasy writers of America. I'm also the uh, co-editor-in-chief and co-publisher of Uncanny Magazine, which is a Hugo Award-winning online magazine that publishes brand new science fiction and fantasy short stories poems, and articles.
1: So today we're talking about speculative fiction, fantasy, and its role in schools. What is the definition of speculative fiction?
0: Well, that really depends upon who you ask. But my definition of it is that it is a broad range of stories uh, that ask the question, what if? And uh, the different subgenres tend to just be different flavors of what if. So uh, fantasy tends to be what if involving magic instead of technology, whereas science fiction tends to be what if involving technology rather than magic. uh, But I read a lot of stuff that is somewhere in between. I think of it as a spectrum. We often talk about the future or the past uh, using speculative fiction as a way of looking at different outcomes. Uh, We also use speculative fiction as a way of creating um, different perspectives uh, because sometimes it's easier to look at problems and solutions from a point of view that you hadn't considered before. Also, you know, unicorns and spaceships are cool. There's always room in literature for fun, too. But often, there's an important social message behind the fun. If you sneak it in, it's like putting vegetables in a very tasty cheese sauce. You don't notice you're getting healthy things. Hmm. You're just thinking,
1: yay, cheese. Exactly. Cheese sauce. Now I'm only going to be thinking about cheese sauce.
0: Well, it is near lunchtime, so I apologize. So when did you know you were interested in speculative fiction? I did not read genre fiction avidly as a kid. I was very much a classics kind of person. Uh, Whatever was on the school reading list was kind of my deal. But A Wrinkle in Time, which was on the school reading list back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the Earth in the 80s and I was in grade school, uh, was one of my favorite books. And it's still something I come back to as a bit of a touchstone, although I actually prefer A Swiftly Tilting Planet, the third book in the series, because unicorns. I know. See, and I was a wind in the door. So why do you think A Wrinkle in Time resonated with you? I think the main reason A Wrinkle in Time resonated with me was because I was reading it as a very awkward 11 and 12 year old reading about a very awkward 11 and 12 year old trying to figure stuff out and trying to figure out who she was as a person and that's I think a fairly universal experience even if being transported to another planet to save your dad through a tesseract is not a universal experience it gives you a different perspective that then allows you to look at yourself and how you learn and change through the experiences that you have Um, and I think that that's one of the wonderful things about Specfic is that it allows you to stretch your imagination so that when you come back to yourself, you've learned a little more about who you are in ways you didn't expect. That's why I was always an avid
2: reader, whether it was mm-hmm. sci-fi fantasy. Um, my elementary years, I, I spent a lot of time reading about unicorn stories, all of those just magical stories that let you imagine the the what if, what if I had a pet unicorn? How amazing would that be?
1: See, and I always wanted a dinosaur. Which is also a
0: perfectly valid life choice. Exactly. <laughs> you know, one of we my favorite judge. Twitter accounts is Sue the T-Rex from the Field Museum. Yes. She's oh, a rock. riot.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that the dinosaur people and the unicorn people can all sit together at a table and have a conversation.
0: Absolutely. I, I mean, so. that's actually one of the things we're doing with Uncanny Magazine this year. In addition to the special issue that we're currently kickstarting, the Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction issue, we're also doing another theme issue, which is a dinosaur-themed issue, specifically because we want to make sure we cross that unicorn-dinosaur or divide.
1: Why do you think that there's still pushback between genre fiction and literature?
0: I always think of literature as another kind of genre. I mean, every subset of literature has its own tropes, has its own traditions, has its own um, ways of thinking and being to a certain extent. And it's just a matter of what your comfort zone is. And I think that there's pushback because people find an excessive amount of imagination suspect, Uh, which is a shame because our best things in this world come out of folks with an excessive amount of imagination. Now they may be teamed with people who are very good at engineering things in precise ways, but you don't get really great design and really wonderful functionality without an excessive amount of imagination. So I think that encouraging imagination is one of the most important things that happens in any given genre, as well as encouraging empathy. You know, The ability to empathize with characters and to learn about folks that are not like yourself in whatever capacity, now whether that's because they're a dragon or whether that's because their life experience is different than yours, those are things that can happen in any kind of fiction, whether it's uh, science fiction fantasy or whether it's literary. And I think that as a librarian, I get very cranky at people who are committed to the notion that there is good fiction and there is bad fiction in the sense that a particular subgenre must be bad because it looks suspiciously like fun. Um, That has always bothered me. There is good fiction and bad fiction in the sense that there is well-written, well-constructed fiction and not-so-well-written and not-so-well-constructed fiction. But to a certain extent, that's a matter of personal taste, and the only way to really develop that taste is to be a voracious reader, which is something that time and time again has been demonstrated to help students in every possible aspect of their academic lives. So, you know, I, I'm the kind of person where if I walk into a home and there are no bookshelves, I'm a little taken aback because I, I spend my life working with people who are avid readers and who love reading stories, no matter what the subgenre. And if you're having fun, good. <laughs> there should be room for fun. Life is not all drudgery, nor should it be. There's got to be space for unicorns, too. And dinosaurs. And dinosaurs.
1: So what pitch would you make to teachers who maybe don't share our views about fun in literature how would you get them to start seeing sci-fi and fantasy
0: as appropriate books for school there are ways to teach science fiction and fantasy that are that are the same as you would teach anything else that you're teaching i mean you can you can develop a set of questions for works by James Dashner or Tim, or Tamara Pierce, the same way that you do for Mark Twain. If you're trying to uh, build more imaginative works into your curriculum because of the, because imagination is important, you can bring in the work of writers like Nnedi Okorafor. Uh, Herzara, The Windseeker, is an amazing mid-grade novel uh, that has some of the best, most imaginative nature-based world building I have ever seen. And kids who aren't getting exposed to that are missing out because it's just it's completely out there in the most wonderful way and it's beautifully written on top of it so you can talk about theme you can talk about topical conversations and current events through the frame of works that have been written during the time period that you're talking about you can talk about journeys for characters you can talk about choices that characters make these are all things that happen in genre fiction the same way that they happen in literary fiction it's just that the choices are being made on a spaceship or in a jungle or or on a boat, or however, you know, whatever the framing is, on the back of a unicorn. Uh, but all of those... All <laughs> of all good decisions all are good made. all good decisions are made on the back <laughs> of a unicorn. You know, there are really anything that you can teach as literature that has been established as literature you can teach science fiction and fantasy the same way there's literally nothing stopping you and you might find that if you are working with books that are less than 25 to 50 years old your students may be more engaged because it feels slightly more relevant to their lives in a way that it didn't plus there's nothing wrong with a little bit of fun what do we have against imagination
2: (laughs) why do we hate fun (laughs) You comment on the, why do we, we hate fun? You, you seem to get that same response when people are like, well, I read graphic novels and comic books. And I'm like, oh,
0: that's not really reading. Absolutely, but it's reading. I it's, look a different, my... it's a different mode of reading, oh, but it's absolutely. a hugely important mode of storytelling. And you can tell amazing stories in comics and graphic novels, and particularly for reluctant readers. Yes. It's a hugely important venue for getting them into stories. There was a recent discussion on Twitter with a librarian who was talking about her summer reading program. She had a really reluctant reader, but the kid was really into um, Ultimate Spider-Man, Miles Morales, and he read every Ultimate Spider-Man graphic novel in the library and then there's a novel now that, that stars Miles, Miles Morales that is out and she handed it to him and that was the moment where the light bulb went off and he was like, wait, books don't suck. Mm-hmm. This can be fun. I, I know this character. I like this character. This experience matters to me. There are books for me. That's a huge revelation for any kid. And what it does is it encourages them to go find more and more and more mm-hmm. and to maybe go on and create more and more and more. And those are good things.
1: Right. And I think there's an idea, too, among writers that you have to decide whether you're writing for an audience right now. And it's going to be consumed, and then they're going to go on. Or are you writing for the ages? You know, No, they- that's
0: nonsense. Because you can't decide. I, I'm a curator. I literally pick what is for the ages myself as part of my <laughs> job. You can't decide what's for the ages. You can't. Because the things that are popular and the things that end up for the ages are often radically different things. And there's no control over it from the author's perspective. All you can do is write the best book that you can write. The stuff that stands the test of time... That's completely arbitrary because often it's down to who put together a syllabus that then gets replicated in colleges across the country or in high schools across the country. That's what it comes down to. You have literally zero control over that. (laughs) And the thing is, the books that really stand the test of time are the ones where they are passed on because someone says, oh my god, you have to read this. That's how books permeate a culture. Whether that is Twilight, which gets knocked around a lot, although, you know, Twilight has its issues. It's a very good rendition of what it's like to be a very insecure 16-year-old girl. The George R. R. Martin books, um, those are fantastic books and everybody's waiting for him to finish and people are watching the series. The fact that we're trying to kill fun is something that just deeply upsets me. Because (laughs) there's little enough joy in life as it is. You know, Everybody has trials and tribulations. Everybody has things that are difficult for them in their lives. And if we take away things that add to our happiness, I think that does people a disservice. Because life is hard. Nobody has an easy life and putting out works that make someone feel better now whether that's because you read a romance novel that has a happy ever after and that feeling of safety that love is a thing that still exists in the world is good for you or whether it's that you know your intrepid hero de- defeated the the evil emperor on the planet Zod you know at the end of that science fiction novel and thus the colony ship was saved Both of those are important emotional things for people to have that help them feel safe in a world that often is not.
1: That was Lynn M. Thomas, five-time Hugo Award winner for her SF Squeak cast, Chicks Dig Time Lords collection, and Uncanny magazine. Up next, we'll be talking with author Aaron Starmer. So I love what Lynn said about whether or not something can be for the ages, and that the only way to really tell if something is for the ages is if, is if people get excited about that, and so I'm very excited to talk to Aaron Starmer today, because his books are those kinds of books that you say, oh my god, you have to read this. It's funny, because I said that with spontaneous. I brought
2: you spontaneous. I'm like, oh my god, you have to read this. It's about kids blowing up. It's awesome. You had come in with The Riverman. Right. I think I found Riverman, maybe it was a year or A year or so before and it was the same thing I'm like oh my god i think i gave you riverman and the whisper these are amazing
1: and then we were like wait it's the same same guy uh so we're talking to that guy today and one of the great things about aaron starmer is that his writing comes back to that question of what if what if your classmates started exploding what if your neighbor said that she found a portal to a magical world in her basement what if one day everyone in the world was just gone and you were pretty sure that it was your fault Here's Aaron Starmer. Well, thank you, Aaron, so much for being with us today. We're really excited to talk to you. And well, thank you for having me. <laughs> we, I just wanted to say up front that uh, we love your books. And if we stop asking questions and start kind of foaming at the mouth, we wanted to have a safe word
2: today. So we're thinking <laughs> wombat. So wombats are safe. Okay. Word.
3: <laughs> so that's a good one.
2: If we fangirl a bit people. too much. <laughs>
3: It might take me a bit, a while, to uh, to stop you. So So go ahead.
1: You're like, just keep it coming. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, but if it ever gets weird, you know, just just wombat so (laughs) yeah we're going to talk a little bit about your books but your books are interesting in that you can't really talk about them i want to talk about the ending so bad i know i want to talk about all the endings and i can't talk about any of the endings or even the middles so um so we wanted to talk about you as a writer we're really interested in origin stories
3: what kind of student were you well, I, I was always a, a pretty good student. I was never I was never exceptional, but i was I was never a bad student. I always had an interest in stories and telling stories, and writing stories in one form or another. Uh, I can remember um, when I was in elementary school, I was really into weird Al Yankovic, like many uh, elementary school <laughs> students are. So I was writing my own parodies of things a lot. That's how I got started there. But if anything, I was a better a better math uh, student than anything.
1: <laughs> so when did you know you wanted to be a writer and as opposed to a, uh, a Weird Al parody songwriter?
3: <laughs> well, I guess I was exploring all sorts of ways to tell stories and I would write little screenplays and notebooks and I would write poems and I, I would write all these different things. Uh, but I never had aspirations to be a novelist, maybe because that seemed too big and too, uh, too difficult, uh, until maybe I was in high school, I was I was talking to some people about this recently, about the recent eclipse, and there was an eclipse my um, senior year of high school, I think it was 1994, uh, I guess it wasn't, uh, I guess it was what you call an annular eclipse, or, or something like that. And uh, we went out and we watched it in the middle of our, our class day and we wore the glasses and everything and I remember that night I came up with an idea for a novel which was going to be about a, uh, a caveman who witnesses an eclipse and suddenly becomes brilliant uh, and builds a huge society and it's a story of revenge and it's supposed to be epic and all these things that I, I, I was like wow now this could be a novel this could be something big uh, and I wrote about two or three pages of it, and I realized I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> and and I had no idea how to approach it. And I and I didn't attempt to write a novel again for probably six or seven years after I'd gone through college and tried some other forms of writing, uh, and and then I got back into it when I uh, had another idea.
1: Okay, yeah. Now you started out writing travel guides, right? Like best camp, best best camps. Camping best tent
2: best camping of New York state. <laughs> we could try right that again. Yeah. <laughs> best tent. Best tent. I can't even say it. Since yes. you don't tent camp, you just you can't even say the words. <laughs> yeah,
3: it feels
1: weird in my mouth.
3: Uh. It's uh, <laughs> that is a uh, that was sort of a roundabout story. I worked in the travel industry for a number of years. Uh, for a, a company that sold books to travelers. So like if you were going on a um, on a cruise uh, in Eastern Europe, or you were going uh, to Africa on safari, what our company would do is we would compile these lists of books for you to read, almost like an annotated uh, bibliography of, of novels and guidebooks and art histories and, and anything to inform you on the place that you were going. And I did that for a number of years. Uh, so I got a pretty good idea of what sort of travel literature was out there and also about guidebooks. And then one day my, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was just on Craigslist and saw an ad. They needed someone to write a, a book on camping in New York. And she thought it would be a fun adventure. And we wrote my brother into it. And we spent a summer visiting all these campsites. It was pretty boring when it came down to it. But <laughs> it was the first first time I got paid to write. And then it was actually something I could put on my resume and say, hey, I, I wrote a book. I'm an author. And that opened a lot of doors for me. And uh, the book is still still in print in the second edition, and I get royalty checks, so I'm not, I'm not complaining too
2: much. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a camper to begin with, or was this also kind of your first taste of camping?
3: Well, you know, I was in the sense that I grew up doing a little bit of it in the summer. And then uh, my wife and I... Uh, we'll go on hiking trips and and things like that where we might camp. It's not an obsession of mine. Um, <laughs> apparently, apparently I'm an am I'm an expert on New York camping though, so I, I do occasionally get emails from people asking me very obscure questions about camping. But um, but yeah, it was more about if you're a family looking to you know looking for a comfortable campsite somewhere in New York, or you're a hiker looking for a comfortable campsite somewhere in New York. What are the best ones? So it was more. More research than anything.
1: <laughs> That's at the end of the day. You actually had to camp, though. That's the bummer of it. But I uh, love- well, <laughs>
3: I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to admit something here. Is we we spent a week visiting all these with this grand plan of uh, staying every night at one. And then I think at the fourth night we were we were sick of it and we started staying at, at motels. Uh, <laughs> but we would drive to uh, we would drive to all the campsites and, and check them all out. So
2: that's uh, the follow up book, the best yes. motel stays in the <laughs> New York State near campgrounds near campgrounds in
1: New York yes. yeah. for the
2: it, camping there is no experience. There's no shame in giving up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the title.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's the way I camp give up right away. <laughs> um, so I love that the world has spontaneous and the riverman because of Craigslist.
0: Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, uh, I tell anyone, I tell everyone who's trying to get into writing, you know, you've got to accept the opportunities that are presented and the world isn't going to be presented to, to you at, at first. So you've got to take some assignments. And I did lots of internet writing that My name isn't on, but I just had to do it to learn uh, how to do it. So do you think
1: that the travel writing and the Internet writing then informed your fiction?
3: Um, I think it gave me more discipline, I guess, than anything. Uh, When you write a book uh, about camping and you're describing fifty campsites that are almost all the same. You've gotta become both efficient and different in your writing each time. It taught me strategies of how to plan, how to how to put together a full book. And then the internet writing was more about taking on different voices and, and trying different things from copywriting to satire to other things. So, you know, it was almost it was almost seeing what I was good at more than improving uh what I loved and then once I figured that out I it pointed me in a certain direction
1: so how did you gravitate towards writing for middle grade and YA
3: I started doing it I guess it was about 10 years ago so it would have been 2007 uh, after I had written a novel for adults that I couldn't get an agent to read I couldn't get anyone to look at because for one, it wasn't very good, but two, I, I just didn't have any idea what, what the book market was like at the time, and it and it didn't fit anywhere in it. But it did have a section in it that was about a um, group of 13-year-old boys that go missing on Halloween night. And as I read through it, I thought, this is probably the best written section in the book. And I started researching a little bit about what fiction was out there for young people. And, and when I was young, it was it was Judy Bloom, and it was Beverly Cleary, and and or it was Paul Zindel, and uh, you know different different writers from the '70s. But it wasn't this big, huge thing that is now. So I I was playing on a on a coed soccer team in New York City, and there was a woman on my team that worked for Scholastic, uh, the publisher, and I asked her, "What does one have to do to get published in this in this world?" And she gave me some pointers. Uh, she wasn't in a position to be accepting manuscripts, uh, but I came up with this idea uh, that ended up being my first novel called Dweeb. And when I wrote it, I thought, okay, this is a young adult novel. I, I quickly learned that what I had written was a middle grade novel. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, I was sort of thrown into it with not a huge knowledge of the industry. Now you've got lots of young writers coming up uh, that have been reading the stuff since they were young. Uh, have been following the industry and are so much smarter about it than I was at that time. I was just trying to tell a story about thirteen-year-old boys, which is what I thought my voice was best suited to.
1: Now you don't strike me as a Judy Bloom kind of guy. What were you reading then? <laughs>
3: um, I I did read some Judy Bloom. It wasn't my favorite. I <laughs> I was a I was a rolled doll kind of guy, like mm-hmm, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, for that dark sense of humor, uh, I liked John Belair's when I was younger. Um, and I guess, you know, the house, with the clock in its walls. And, and I think a lot of my sort of spooky stuff comes from that sensibility. Uh, I liked the great brain, uh, which I'm told now, if I went back to revisit, I would think were were awful, but I I love those books because they were, they were about, um, about uh, children being smarter than you expected them to, uh, to be. And that always appealed to me and I think always appeals to children.
1: A lot of your books deal with characters who are questioning their reality. So why, why do you think that's a common theme in your work?
3: I, you know, I, I should have a better answer for this than, than it just appeals to me as, as a storyteller to look at the real world and then twist it a little bit and have a bit of magic, have a bit of the uncanny, and how would a real person react to that? Um, those are the stories that I like to read about. Um, I like to read about real people confronting something they can't explain. And maybe that's because you know, occasionally in life I come across things I can't explain, and, and it's the questioning of what's real, what's what can I believe, that really intrigues me. It's sort of this philosophical, cosmological question that that I've been, I've been playing around with since I was a little kid.
1: And I think that a lot of the times in your books, the people who are questioning their reality, or, you know, in any time, people are seen as crazy. And I think that there's some kind of connection that you seem to be making between madness and creativity. Do you feel that way as a writer? Do you feel a little crazy when you're making up these worlds?
3: I certainly feel obsessive about it. And it's. I think a lot of writers would agree that You become obsessive, like you don't necessarily love the act of writing, but you need to do it. You need to get these stories out. And so I'm often questioning where does the inspiration come from, uh, which is something I explore in in The Riverman. And sometimes it feels a little mad or magical or weird. And the only way to, to deal with it and not have it eat away at you is get it down on a piece of paper, make a story out of it. Um, If you've got some weird thought, some weird idea, make it into a story, and then it it calms your nerves a little bit. And I guess that's something a lot of re- writers can relate to, but I think a lot of people can relate to in anything that they do that's a hobby, whether it's sports or, or uh, you know, knitting or whatever it is that calms their nerves.
2: <laughs> I have to knit I to get the crazy out. To knit. But I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I think all the time. No, but I think what's really interesting is, you know, Myself as a reader, there are books where you read, you kind of pass through that world, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to leave it behind. But with Riverman and I, Spontaneous, all of them, even once we finished the book, I wanted to linger. It's it's like I was just as obsessed about the world and the story and these characters. And after I read it, I was still putting pieces together, and I wanted to stay there. And so I think your obsession comes through to the reader and becomes our obsession.
3: Thank you. No, no, I, I that's a that's a great compliment, because I, I want readers to go away with that feeling. Um, these aren't necessary, you know, without giving anything away, these aren't perfect little jewel box mysteries that you can fit you finish and walk away and go on to something else. I, I hope that they linger. But some people don't necessarily like that experience. But I hope I'm finding the readers that do. I'm going to
1: go a little bit off of what Kristen said, because we don't want to get into Wombat territory. I know, I was just going to say, is that a Wombat? (laughs) (laughs) Kristen (laughs) just finished The Only Ones. uh, And so we were like... And, and that means that the diggers, and then, yes. ah! We've but, had to force the books on each other to be yeah. like, you just need to read this so I can talk to somebody. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's a, a common question that kids have when they're talking to authors. You, know, you always hear, where do you get your ideas? Where do stories come from? And I think you explored that in The Riverman. Do you want to talk about the idea of the, the creation of stories and just kind of how you built that
3: world? Yeah, I, I think without giving away too much of the story is is the if you if you go back the Riverman is a trilogy it's you know a thousand pages you've got to get through to to some sort of closure and whether that's closure or not I'm not sure but but the one thing that I I wanted people to come away from it is we tell stories uh, to cope with. With difficult things, and it could be just simple, as I said, just simple stress, anxiety. But I think culturally, you know, stories are a way we can we can put order in a world that we can't necessarily explain. Um, and it seems most cultures have some form of that. And so I wanted to do, explore it through the through the lens of almost my young life because it takes place in in basically a, a fictional version of the town where I grew up in in uh, central new york in the time when i grew up in the late 80s and obviously none of the crazy events that happen in it happened to me but it was a very sort of a turning point in my life where yes you're questioning what it means to be an adult you're questioning what it means to have a friend you're questioning what it means to fall in love there's all these things you don't explain you can't explain and tragedies small and big form who you are and you try to make the story of yourself and you try to make a story of the world around you. And that's the way you cope with it. Um, That's sort of, you know, a wishy washy way of selling the book, I guess, because I'm not really telling you anything about what the book is, but you know, it's basically the story of whether a boy can believe his, uh, his neighbor visits a magical world or not. Um, And, it's about that turning point uh, when you're a child and whether whether you're ready to give up on magic or whether you're uh, ready to accept
2: it yeah do you wanna <laughs> want what does to it believe I mean to leave yeah
1: <laughs> I, when we talked before you talked about uh, there being a primal level where stories come from do you want to do you want to yeah. talk about that
3: I mean or, you know <laughs> even yeah, everyone. I mean, everyone is attracted to stories. Anyone anyone that says they aren't isn't paying attention to their own life. They might not read novels. They might not. They might not watch movies. They're watching the news or they're following some story. Um, it might just be the story of their their family life. But you know, a lot of the Riverman and a lot of my books are concerned with memories and how you construct your memories. And I think we all go through life and we have all these experiences and as we look back on them we try to construct some not logical narrative uh, about them and we might get the timelines wrong and we might get details wrong uh, but as we go through life we're always constructing narratives and and it's just the most primal human thing is is stories and and that goes into all disciplines into science into obviously into history but into most human pursuits are, are tied around story
1: yeah, absolutely. And we're really interested in those connections between STEM and storytelling. And you have a lot of STEM in your books. I think when I finished one of your books, I tweeted at you about um, the machine. <laughs> and you said that mm-hmm. you had um, blueprints for it, that it, you had a way that it worked. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. <laughs> I want them. but And I figured you probably, I don't know that you really actually do. Uh,
3: <laughs> but I, I don't. No, go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wombat. Um, yeah. So, so no, but I think that you tie in. Uh, STEM a lot. So so Martin has his machine that he's building. You know he's a tinkerer. He's an engineer. You have Lane and her uh, Rube Goldberg machines, and then you have Test and her interest in science and her pursuit of the truth in um, spontaneous. So so you have a lot of STEM concepts going throughout your books. So I'd like to just know a little bit more about what you think about the connections between artists and scientists.
3: I'm I'm just intrigued by um, science in the sense that how far we've gotten and the things that we've figured out that i can't even fathom i mean my father my father's a scientist and you know he writes scholarly papers that i would have no idea what they mean and he always critiques my science my books because my books aren't aren't necessarily scientifically sound but they are they are sciency i guess (laughs) it would be the term um You you referenced the only ones, and the only ones these these children build this giant machine that has a a mysterious purpose that you don't learn until the end of the book. Uh, But I didn't necessarily draw detailed blueprints of it, uh, but I had this very sort of distinct image. Okay, these gears have to be over here, and there's got to be some pistons over here. And I'm not an engineer, but I wanted it to be like the magic... That happens in the book has to be very tactile, and it's not just waving a waving a wand and saying a, a magic word to make something happen. That there was machinery behind it, in that in the sort of old H. G. Wells sort of way, but also in a way that I felt is more accessible to to different types of audiences. I, re- I remember when I went to see Back to the Future as a child. You know, and there's the scene at the end where they where they uh, the lightning hits the clock tower and they've got to hit the wire and and send it back in time. And my brother and I immediately went home and set up our train set (laughs) and 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 tried to recreate it by sending an electrical charge through a a wire and having a, uh, uh, a metal post on the train. And, you know, I don't think deep down we thought it would work. But there was, you know, there was part of us that said, well, maybe, you know, maybe if we get this right, what something
2: could happen. You had what to have
1: the, the flux capacitor. Um,
2: exactly. Yeah. That's
1: why it didn't work.
3: Yeah. So, and well, and <laughs> it we, was the heart. Our train set did not go 88 miles per hour, or, <laughs> well, or, you know, so, um, but yeah, it's that realness feeling of it um, that I think um, gets readers more invested. If you just say, ah, oh, it's magic, you know, it, it doesn't feel the same
2: almost the edge of possible it's on the edge right. of possible
3: right because you know look at what we you know I'm talking to you on this computer in my in my hand that's the size of a pack of cards and you know it's ridiculous I don't understand how it works
1: <laughs> actually uh, we do set this podcast up with magic though that yes <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's that's uh, our secret yeah so I the, something, something that you said the last time we talked was um, the place where artists and scientists meet, they meet at an unknowable truth. I just want yeah. you to say that again.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, I think, I think we're all always we're all struggling with what do we have, you know what do we have faith then, whether it's a religious faith or whether it's you know some cosmological faith, but we're all trying to get to this core truth of why are we here where where are things going what came before and how does it all work and you know that's i guess it's more tied into these big cosmological questions and and physics and you know uh, relativity and all these things but i find it when you have very real very scientific people and very religious people you know you think there are extremes on the spectrum but but there are places that they can meet, and you know, if you're going to tie that back into stories, we're just trying to figure out the stories of our beginnings and our futures, and and we're all looking for answers. Uh, we're going. Different people are going about it in different ways. Uh, I'm not. I'm not religious enough to follow one path, and I'm not. I'm not analytical enough to follow another path. But I'm. I'm sort of exploring both through through uh, stories and and. Um, and you know how this all mingles together
1: awesome well we love reading it so keep doing it absolutely um so looking toward the future can you tell us about your next book or is it a secret too
3: <laughs> uh the what i'm working on right now i'm going to keep secret because who knows whether we'll see the light of day uh there is one that is with my editor that i hope will be out next year currently titled "Meme." Um, which is sort of a very current of-the-moment story about an Internet meme that, that has dark origins. And uh, it's it's a thriller. It's a young adult novel, but it has a few humorous moments, but it's more a uh, more a real sort of bare-knuckle thriller about some, some students that do some a very bad thing that they think they do for a very good reason. And uh, it all gets tied up in, in the crazy Internet culture of today.
2: Mm-hmm. Very fitting. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Very timely.
3: (laughs) I hope. I hope. You know, it's the publishing schedule, you know, it's going to be out and everything is going to be passe by then, but who knows?
1: (laughs) Do you have any other questions?
2: No, I could just spend another 10, 15 minutes gushing about the books, but we'd be moving into Wombat territory. Yeah. Or spoiler territory. Or spoiler territory, which, <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, well, the one thing with spoilers is most of my books have been out for a while now. So if you True. want the spoilers, they, they're out there. So I, I, you know, and it's, it's interesting, because I like to set up my books where there are interesting twists, but I hope that. If someone is spoiled while going in, they can experience it in a whole other way. I've designed the books hopefully for rereading because I want to appeal to the to the young readers who like to reread and and go in and find find little clues that they didn't know before or see see what I was doing that they didn't realize before because I think that's that was one of my discoveries as a um, as a young student was that a novel isn't just produced in a fit of artistic inspiration that it's poured over again and again and tinkered with and editors are involved and and there's so much that goes into it that it's a well-designed machine hopefully uh in the way that that in the only ones they have a well-designed machine and I guess that was also a metaphor for my writing
1: thank you so much for talking to us today uh, it's really great to hear all of your ideas about storytelling and the convergence of stories and science so thank you
3: yeah thank you it was a pleasure
1: Kristen. Yes. (laughs) What? Kristen, listen to this. I've been practicing, okay? Okay. Tent camping in
2: New York State. Hmm. Tent camping in New York State. Very impressive for someone who does not like tent camping in any state.
1: Yeah, I don't want to do it, but I feel like I can say it now and we can move on with our lives. Tent camping in New York State. Tent camping. So our main takeaways are that there is a case to be made for sci-fi and fantasy books in the classroom. Books are used to build imagination and perspective. Some students might relate more to Jane Eyre, while others are going to identify with Miles Morales. But it's important to
2: offer choice and to let students find their passion. You can teach characterization, theme, perspective, STEM concepts, and find real-world connections with some fresh new texts that might just blow your students' minds. And maybe by bringing books like
1: The Riverman into schools, we can get students' brains buzzing with a whole new set of what-ifs. Thanks to our guests, Lynn M. Thomas and Erin Starmer. You can check out our
2: show notes to connect with our guests and learn more about their work. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read
1: podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.